Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. In his new book, Rise of the Mavericks, the U.S. Air Force Security Service and the Cold War, which came out in 2023 from the Naval Institute Press, Philip Shackelford traces the origins of the UASFSS, forerunner of today's Air Force Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance Agency, with the context of two significant developments in the history of American national security policy. One is the emergence of the Air Force as a separate service with its own policy needs and organizations, independent of and sometimes in competition with its sister services. The other is the development of our intelligence community in all its variety. As the UASFSS jostled with other agencies for resources and influence and pursued its specific mission of gathering important communications data for developing air strategy and dealing with the Soviet Union, those rivalries have echoed down to the present, offering important insights into how the international community and the U.S. armed forces turned the theory of joint planning into practice. Proving that cliches sometimes reflect the truth, Shackelford offers a previously largely untold story, relating broader developments to personal stories of the people who built and nurtured the UASFSS through its first decades. Phil Shackelford joins us today to discuss his work, beginning but not ending, with that book. For in addition to writing Rise of the Mavericks, military historian Phil Shackelford is also the creator and host of the Modern Scholar podcast. He's currently serving as executive director of the Lee Itawamba Regional Library System, following roles as library director at South Arkansas College and as president of the Arkansas Library Association. And we're going to talk about all those things today. So welcome to A Better Peace, Phil Shackelford. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So uh, I want you to start by talking about what inspired this project, because it is rare that people can offer such a direct personal connection to the research projects that they embark on. And I'd love for our, our listeners that story. That is true. That is true. And and I, I do believe that every historian has has some sort of a personal connection to the topic that they choose to to research. But um, in, in my case, it is it is very personal. Um, it began with my grandfather, uh, Tom Shackelford, who served with the Air Force Security Service back in the early 1950s. Um, and uh, for me growing up as a, as a kid, you know, I, I became aware um, that he had served in the Air Force and he would tell uh, stories to, to my brother and I as we were kind of growing up uh, in, in northeast Mississippi about about that experience and about that time, nothing very specific, and obviously nothing that would indicate just how secretive an organization the the security service really was. Um, certainly not to a couple of kids that you know did not yet have the context for everything that he was he was talking about. Um, but uh, as as that journey kind of continued for me, but my uh, my family uh, moved away uh, from from Northeast Mississippi my my senior year of high school with my dad's job. 
And so this was around the time that uh, Skype was was getting very big, if, if people will remember back to the early days of video conferencing and, and uh, the beginnings of that technology. And and uh, my, my grandparents had uh, started down that path, but, but uh, we're, we're still kind of trying to figure it out. And so we began to write letters back and forth uh, with, with my grandparents. And, and in those letters, um, uh, my grandfather began to get a little bit more detailed um, about his Air Force experience than he had in the, the stories that he would tell us in person. And uh, so kind of taking that um, as, a, as a baseline when I got to uh, college and, and undergrad in history, uh, as many of your listeners will know, as you approach the, the seniors uh, uh, capstone, the, the senior year, you have a, a senior project that you have to write, 30-page um, papers or so, and you have to find a topic that you're going to to specialize in and, and, and uh, write that senior capstone. And so it, it became a matter for me of, of kind of casting about because I was interested in a few different things, looking for a topic that that made sense. And I ultimately kind of landed on the security service. And, you know, let me see what can be found out. This is interesting. Uh, let me see what see what's out there. And it was immediately kind of flabbergasted and surprised at just how little information was available. Of course, for very good reason, the security service was an intelligence agency and uh, very, very classified, very secretive, and, and much of the material uh, still to this day uh, remains uh, classified. Um, but I mentioned it to a professor I was working with in a different department um, as a research assistant, and he and I started poking around doing a little bit of research. And I never will forget we're in his lab one day, and uh, uh, he looks up and just very bluntly he says, "Your grandfather was a spy." And even if you've started to get an indication of where the research might take you, of what some of these things might actually mean, to have someone put it to you that way uh, in so many words, um, it makes an impression. And so I was hooked, uh, did the, the senior capstone on the security service and kind of uh, not specifically focusing on the organization so much as the as the concept of signals intelligence and what it meant for the early Cold War um, and, and those sorts of uh, topics. And then, uh, like I said, moving forward, stuck with it through grad school, um, understood from a fairly early point in the research that this needed to be told. This was a, um, a story. This was a topic that had not been explored um, in the in the scholarly literature. And uh, so that, as, as uh, many of your listeners will know, that's a blessing and a curse, right? There's a huge opportunity. Uh, if, when, when there's a gap in the literature, there's, there's a huge opportunity to to fill that gap. Uh, but that also means that there's no secondary literature to, to rely on and, and build a case. And so it, it becomes a matter of weaving together a tapestry of um, tangentially related bodies of literature that that uh, ultimately relate to the to the topic at hand, um, and then weaving those together with primary research to to hopefully build a, a successful case. So stuck with it uh, through there, and and uh, yeah, the rest is history. The rest is history, literally and figuratively. I I have to say, right there's the. the any any study of history right has to consider sort of the the, the collision between the accidental and the planned right and so mm, the idea absolutely. that for example you mentioned that your grandfather went to the recruiting office intending to sign up for the marine corps um yeah. and made a long trip to the recruiting office and when the marine corps recruiter wasn't there he said well i guess i'll try the air force because the air force guy's right, right here and uh, right. <laughs> uh that's there, there's a well that would be a separate podcast we could talk about 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 recruiting well, and this was all without the knowledge of his family um without and, the knowledge because uh, he snuck yes. away to do this right yeah right well, yes so he yeah. was a spy to begin with i guess absolutely <laughs> well and so but but so we think about this but then going back to the idea of you know the accidental versus the mm. planned for the air force um the uh uh, obviously, as the Air Force emerges as a separate service, right, it doesn't want to have to rely on its big brother, the Army, or its uh, or its other troublesome sister, the Navy, um, right. for things like intelligence. 
At what point was it clear that the Air Force needed to develop a complete a security service of its own? Um, in other words, was this was this mm-hmm. a push from within the Air Force, or was this a a generally recognized um, thing that the the Air Force had intelligence requirements that the other services simply didn't have? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it does go back to the the wartime experience. And there, there uh, were a number of um, key figures that were uh, kind of understood the challenges that, that faced um, uh, air intelligence and, and the Air Force more broadly with uh, relating to matters of intelligence. Uh, Vandenberg comes to mind. Arnold comes to mind. These these figures who um, were, were heavily involved in, in not only the um, uh, Persecution of the war, but but also um, matters relating to intelligence and the and the needs that the Air Force had that were different from uh, typical military intelligence priorities and, and targets and and uh, methodology. Um, but the, the challenge was that uh, air intelligence was often controlled and uh, carried out by military intelligence personnel. And uh, the Air Force leaders never really felt that the Army had a, a good grasp on uh, the, the unique needs and, and priorities of the Air Force and never really had the, the Air Force uh, kind of best interests at heart. And so it became a matter of uh, trying to, uh, again, piece together some sort of a workable solution to that during the war, um, during, during World War II, um, and then lay the groundwork for um, emerging from those challenges or meeting those challenges after the war. Um, and this is, you know, the, the, the immediate post-war period is, is a time when when the Air Force is ascendant, right? This is the uh, uh, Air Force is on its way up. Um, it's uh, building its case and has been building its case for, for service independence for quite a while at this point. In fact, uh, World War II really was the only thing that kind of delayed that push for greater autonomy. And so after the war, um, these Air Force leaders fully understand that in order to achieve service independence, we need to overcome dependence um, on the Army, um, and that Mm -hmm. included intelligence. Um, And uh, through that process, um, hopefully lay the groundwork for something that would provide the kinds of information that they actually needed and, and would be useful uh, for uh, Air Force priorities. And uh, so that's uh, that's the that's the background, the backdrop for right. um, what ultimately becomes the the effort to create an independent communications intelligence uh, capability. Well, and and then of course we have the problem of there, there's sort of the the um, how we phrase this, right? There's a back and forth issue, right? So the Air Force needs needs specific information, but there's also specific information that only air assets can gather. Mm-hmm. Um, either when we're talking about we're talking about flying close enough to listen in, or eventually when we get to the possibility of flying over to take mm-hmm. photographs. And so, at what point did the did this Air Force Security Service not only be gather information for the Air Force, but also provided information that was used by the other services as well? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think it's it's uh, it becomes more of an uh, more of a priority uh, throughout the 1950s. We see the the security service itself is established in 48, mm-hmm. um, and immediately the focus is on um, securing that autonomy, but also expanding the organization to be able to meet the needs of the Air Force. Um, but at the same time, there's this national conversation about the organization of uh, American military cryptology, American uh, military communications intelligence more broadly, how it should be organized, how it should be set up, uh, whether or not it should be controlled and coordinated by a, a central joint organization. So that debate is taking place simultaneously. Um, and what we find is that the Air Force, in, especially in those early years, uh, really approaches this um, as a uh, 
an inconvenience at best and as a threat um, at its worst and and is really focused on uh, maintaining the autonomy that they've been uh, so uh, so intent on creating. Um, and so as the, the 1950s kind of ramp up, as the Cold War itself ramps up, we see the Air Force Security Service begin to expand um, uh, significantly. Uh, between 1948 and 1960, the, the number of personnel assigned to the Security Service increased by almost 23,000, uh, which is a force, uh, you know, 150 times larger than the small group they started with in 1948. So this is a period of incredible expansion and transformation. Um, and as that, uh, as those years progress, you start to see um, a little bit more of cooperation and, and, and kind of joint operations, if you will. But this is all under the the backdrop of um, whether or not this joint organization will be created. And after it is, first the Armed Forces Security Agency and then uh, the National Security Agency, there's still a, a fair amount of, of uh, organizational back and forth and, and uh, dissatisfaction with the way things uh, uh, end up uh, being organized that plagues that relationship through uh, the 1950s and into the 1960s. And so finally, with uh, Vietnam and as the, the 1970s approach, we start to see that initial sort of maverick uh, attitude, so to speak, begin to take a back seat um, as uh, joint operations and, and a more joint-minded um, perspective begins to take hold. Well, and there's, there's, there's joint and there's joint. Um, because I'm thinking of the joint between the services and, but you also hinted at the issue of what do we do with the, with the, uh, the civilian slash paramilitary, um, intelligence community organizations. You mentioned the NSA, um, mm -hmm. and the NSA's relationship to the military services. Um, I'm not an expert on this, but I'll, I'll put it this way. It's a little, uh, it's a little opaque, right? The connection between the NSA and the other, and other agencies in the same way that the relationship of the CIA to the existing mm -hmm. military agencies is, is, um, open, uh, or not so open, I would say it's a little opaque. Um, but the, um, but the, the, the question of how does the security service, uh, find find how to delineate the differences or the or patrol the borders let's say between its assets and its responsibilities and the assets and responsibilities of an organization like the NSA yeah, and it's 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 really a matter of understanding kind of where the NSA comes from, um, because mm -hmm. this this debate goes back to uh, the the mid nineteen forties, almost immediately after the war. Um, uh, American military leaders are are, are um, concerned and 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 interested in figuring out this puzzle, this conundrum of how uh, communications intelligence itself should be organized. And of course, this is taking place at roughly the same time as the military unification debates. And so, all of these things are are taking place roughly at the same time and are informing each other. But what ultimately produces the NSA um, is this push to centralize and eliminate duplication and try to streamline um, control and coordination of military uh, cryptology. And first, uh, the, the first step towards that uh, goal is the Armed Forces Security Agency, which is established in 1949. And it's supposed to be this coordinating agency that will um, coordinate and control all of the different uh, military uh, service cryptologic agencies, the Army Security Agency, the Naval Security Group, the Air Force Security Service. But uh, the, the problems with that organization um, include the fact that it's not it does not have budgetary control um, and it does not have uh, direct operational control um, over uh, elements of the, the military service cryptologic agencies. And those those issues do persist with the National Security Agency, which was created in 52 to replace the Armed Forces Security Agency. And so the NSA ultimately comes about because of problems with 
um, trying to bring those military service agencies into some sort of coordinated um, streamlined control. Um, the NSA is, is created to be this this umbrella organization, but again, without the budgetary control and without complete operational control. Um, and so the Air Force and the Navy especially approach this, uh, this debate um, from the perspective that, you know, we know what we need. We really do not want to sacrifice our assets, our priorities, our efforts uh, towards a national organization that we're, we're just going to be in the same position that we were back when we were part of the Army. They're not necessarily going to understand what we need. They're not going to have our priorities in mind. And so that's the perspective that the Air Force and the Navy really bring to this conversation. Mm-hmm. The only reason that the Armed Forces Security Agency is ultimately established in 1949 is that the Army writes a compromise proposal and submits this proposal to the uh, Joint Chiefs, which allows the military service agencies to retain at least some autonomous control of operational, some mobile um, assets out of the field. Um, this is the, this is something that the Air Force can wholeheartedly support. And so they take advantage of that loophole and then designate all of their assets as mobile assets um, and largely escape the uh, <laughs> well, airplanes move. sacrifice. Yes. Airplanes move, right? So they're mobile. Uh, and uh, so largely escape those those service sacrifices to joint assignment and joint direction that, that follow. Um, and so that's the attitude that the security service really enters the 1950s with um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and continues to have that um, very innate, very uh, focused emphasis on uh, autonomy and uh, and eliminating as much as possible uh, external influence. Right. Well, and when when I think about the 1950s and I think about the way that the Air Force is developing, the you know the Air Force is clearly planning to fight the big strategic war that they're uh, that the they they think might be coming. Right. So they're right. they're planning, they're targeting for uh, for an air atomic conflict. And of course, you know, thank goodness, right? They don't end up fighting that. But the air assets of the United States do fight a long and complicated war over Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And what role did the Air Force Security Service play in uh, organizing the American air campaigns? over Vietnam and and how did how did the how did the relationship between the different organizations play out in practice during the Vietnam yeah. era yeah that's a good question I think this is this is where we start to see the Air Force start to realize that um, you know okay we do have to cooperate there are there are important priorities that we have to negotiate and, and, and really um, assist um, in a more uh, joint-minded um, way and the the Air Force Security Self uh, Security Service itself uh, first gets involved in Southeast Asia as an effort to um, support an air war if an air war does indeed break out, which of course we know it does. But at the time, um, they were unaware that that would be um, happening, and so they're really just setting up a capability in anticipation of supporting air to air air to ground uh, combat. And um, it doesn't happen for a while. And so they, they really have to push back on the National Security Agency, um, trying to close down the operation, trying to move it, trying to consolidate it with other um, uh, uh, operations. Um, they, they really have to kind of uh, stand their ground in, in order to keep that operation uh, in place. But ultimately, it does become um, necessary. It does become valuable in supporting the air war that does break out or, over uh, over Vietnam. And really, the security service itself is involved both with tactical support, but also supporting uh, larger campaigns. Operation Bolo mm-hmm. comes to mind. Uh, we all know the story with, with that and how it went down. Um, and the security service was very involved in not only helping to um, uh, track 
the the enemy fighters that were going to be coming up and, and engaging the the American uh, fighters, but also involved in the disguise operation, uh, disguising those those phantoms as uh, larger aircraft so that they would not appear as if an operation of this kind was taking place. Um, and so those kinds of things are, are, are what the security service is really involved in tactical support, but also supporting uh, national level priorities. Well, what was the connection between the Air Force Security Service and other forms of air surveillance, especially when we get the emergence of satellite surveillance, right? Did the did the Air Force Security Service, uh, did they recognize that was somebody else's job or how did they try to get involved in that? You know, that's a great question. I think that's where um, source limitations become become right. obvious when it comes to a project sure. like this um this and, and and really this this kind of gets to some questions and some comments i've, I've seen about the book where um they they wonder well why didn't talk about this operation or why didn't talk about that operation and really the the purpose of this uh work itself was to provide an organizational history as opposed to an operational history because at this point in time many of those operational details just uh, remain unavailable uh, for classification reasons and, and other um, uh, other priorities that, that they have not been released yet. Um, so as more and more of those documents uh, uh, do become declassified and are released, I think we can begin to tell a little bit more of an operational story. Um, but uh, I, I fully recognize and point out in the book that this is the uh, the first step, right, in, in in researching this organization and telling this story that that needed to take place so that we can we can open this topic up for further research. And I think oh, that absolutely. Um, and and if it, even more broadly than that, I mean, the, the Air Force Security Service itself, um, having not had uh, a treatment in, in the scholarly literature, so too the Army Security Agency and the Naval Security Group, these these organizations have not been examined um, in the literature. And so hopefully this uh, will will open up the field a little bit and encourage others to to kind of get involved and say, OK, I'm going to take a look at the Army, I'm going to take a look at the Navy, because these stories need to be um, brought into the uh, brought into the view, brought into the academy. Uh, Absolutely. So that we can all understand their impact. Yeah, well, and and I, and I guess that's that's one of the great one of the great contributions that this book has for the literature, right? Is that you 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 come in with, as you say, you've got the the primary the primary sources you were able to get to, in order to tell this particular story, and we're trying yeah. to sort of knit the connections to other parts of the story, um, right? And so when we think about today, right, what kind of uh, the uh, the Air Force ISR agency? Um, mm. So how does how if how does the current agency reflect? Do you uh, based on what you've been able to, to figure out, right? Reflect its connections to the original um, security service, and in what ways has its uh, has its role or its shape uh, changed from from its origins to now? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think today we've we've sort of seen this this the attitude and perspective come full circle, right? Where we're mm -hmm. not necessarily. Um, uh, involved in the the uh, the maverick outlook that they were in those those early years, we we understand that there's a there's a, a much wider um, effort in place, and the communication is better. I think where this book really has relevance for for modern policymakers and modern uh, practitioners is that organizational piece is understanding the the various negotiations and maneuvering and and all of those sorts of um, internal and, and and debates and processes that really produced an organization like this and then how that organization then decided to leverage past experience relationships with other other agencies to to achieve its its priorities um, because we all know I mean the the intelligence community is is kind of uh, infamous if you will for 
uh, its lack of communication and being, you know, uh, duplication. And, and, and there's what, 17 or 18 agencies now currently um, in the IC. So um, far, all, I wondered right, when exactly. we say that, does, does, does that include the Air Force ISR agency? I'm not even, <laughs> I don't know if That is a great question. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but I think, I think that organizational piece is really where a lot of the relevance for modern um, uh, audiences really comes in because you can start to see, okay, how did they back in the 40s and 50s um, prioritize uh, what, what they needed to do in terms of personnel, in terms of expansion, in terms of relationships with other agencies, um, and, and in order to meet not only service priorities, but national priorities. And what lessons can we take from that, whether they're good lessons or bad lessons, uh, you know, what to do or what not to do um, in terms of, of how agencies communicate with one another, how they operate um, and, uh, and, and how they behave as organizations. There's a, there's a, a, a a much bigger emphasis, I think, in the past probably five to 10 years on organizational cultures of military organizations. We're starting to see books like that appear in the literature. Um, and I, I certainly see this this book is kind of fitting in with that conversation to understand the organizational cultures and the organizational choices that uh, military um, organizations make and, and how sure. to understand them and how to understand why they behave the way they do. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, we get to a, a fundamental philosophical problem, right? Agencies that are about collecting information and keeping secrets um, are not necessarily good at sharing information because exactly. they're not, you know, they're, they, they, they know who they're supposed to share that information with, that yep. one hopes. And yet we continually talk about the need for centralization, coordination. We keep coming up with agencies with names like central and uh, national in them, uh, thinking mm -hmm. that that's going to make everybody behave differently. And yet it doesn't quite. It's an ongoing story, but your, your scholarship opens the and way. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say it, it goes back. This is not a new problem. It goes back yeah. to Pearl Harbor. It goes back to World War mm -hmm. II. Even before that, um, the 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 issue of deciding who's responsible for what, who communicates with who, um, and uh, where those where those lines cross um, is a is a very uh, germane, but also a very old problem. Um, this is not something that's new. And so kind of taking a look and shining a light on an organization like the security service can hopefully help us maybe illuminate um, how some of those things were done in the past and what what are th some things to remember and what are some things to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> so we can, we can hope so. So Phil, I, I got you here to talk about your book, which uh, and I'm glad we're able to do that. But I also wanted to talk about your work as the, uh, the organizer, the inventor of the Modern Scholar podcast, because sure. uh, you know, we are obviously here at, here at A Better Peace. We're always interested in talking about the, the whole process of podcasting, especially in the scholarly realm. And so I, I want to ask you, like, what got you interested in podcasting? What made you decide to be the one man band that you are <laughs> with that, uh, uh, which is, which as anybody, if you haven't listened, if you haven't subscribed, you should subscribe to the Modern Scholar podcast. Um, Phil has some great guests on. He's also had at least one very questionable guest, and that was me. Yeah. But um, No, that was a great episode. Um, uh, what made you decide to start a podcast and what's your what's your vision for what podcasts can do? Well, thank you for that. I, I think, you know, when it comes to podcasting and, and people that do uh, podcasting, it's obviously much like history. It's a very personal story. I uh, began to be a more active podcast listener in the early months of 2020. That even before the pandemic arrived, I, I just uh, discovered a couple of shows that I liked mm -hmm. and began listening. Um, and as you go through that process, as you kind of discover that this is a thing, and we've already, you know, we mentioned a little bit beforehand how podcasting is, is kind of, again, on the rise. Um, it, it's interesting to kind of trace that trajectory. Um, 
I came to the realization that, you know, this is pretty cool. I think I could do this. Um, and roughly that, that kind of coincided with some, some thoughts I was having. I, I wrote an essay for my website about, um, modern historians and what Americans should be able to expect from our historians, what historians should do and public scholarship and, and those kinds of things. And so it kind of came together with the idea of the podcast. And I thought, okay, well, maybe this is an opportunity to not only talk about important work that's being done um, and have scholars on that they can talk about their research and talk about their work, but also kind of lift the veil, lift the curtain a little bit on modern academia, what it takes to be a modern scholar, uh, what's involved professionally, what are the mm -hmm. challenges, what are the benefits, um, just, just, you know, talk about the landscape, um, not only mm -hmm. for uh, folks that uh, have no idea, you know, they may be curious, they may be interested in, in learning a little bit more about modern academia and how it works, uh, but also graduate students who, you know, are in program, um, they're, they're coming through, they're, they're learning their content, they're writing their research, but also they're looking forward to the job market and we all know what that looks like. So what are some ways that they can better understand the profession and maybe set themselves apart and so kind of have those conversations. Right. Um, so that's that's where it came from. And uh, then I just started reaching out to people I knew from conferences or uh, ran across on Twitter or the platform formerly known as Twitter. And uh, uh, it, it, it was it was a great thing. I, everybody said yes, uh, for the most part. And so it's it's been a blessing. <laughs> and, and how and you come out with one episode a week, correct? Or, or yes, or, it's or a weekly what, show. Yeah. Weekly yeah. show. And and do you do it all yourself? The technical, the recording, the whole show? everything. Yep. It's a one man show. Um, host, producer, uh, all that creator, um, social media person, uh, everything that's involved with, with the podcast. Um, and I'm, I'm very low tech. This is not going to impress anyone that does this at a much higher level. I, I you know, it's, it's, it's what I can do for free basically in my own personal mm -hmm. time. So that's, mm -hmm. uh, if, if it gives you a, gives you a sense of, of the operation. Uh, but, uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's been great so far and I've, I've seen a great response and everyone who's been a part of it, I think is, has enjoyed it, which is, which has also been a blessing. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think hopefully it's allowed us to, uh, again, maybe talk about the important work that's being done because, as we all know, there's incredible uh, work and research that's being done. And 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 part of the emphasis behind the podcast is I did not, I actively did not want it to be a history podcast only. Mm -hmm. um, there's an mm -hmm. obvious bias towards history. There's an obvious bias towards military history. Um, but we also talk to librarians. We talk to community community leaders. We talk to other folks that are involved in. Um, leading, leading uh, change, leading organizations, leading communities, and and kind of highlighting that work, but also uh, uh, maybe illuminating how they got to where they are, um, mm -hmm. and understand a little bit about the process. It's that it's that biographical aspect of the conversations that I think uh, it was fun to do, but it's also fun to listen to because you always make sure to ask people how they got where they got. Yeah, um, a little yeah. bit like we try to do here. But um, do you have any particular advice um, that you would give to someone who says, you know what, podcasting looks like so much fun, um, and uh, and it's such a yeah, obviously it's a huge money maker. So I should totally get into right. That. right. What uh, what advice? What advice? <laughs> yeah, we should would you all get into this for the funds. Yes. <laughs> Well, I think I think there, there's there's a whole lot of room uh, mm -hmm. for for podcasts on a variety of different topics. So if you have that interest, if you have that um, that little idea in the in the back of your mind, I, I'd say go for it. I, I think there's there's not necessarily a reason not to do it, other than the time it will take, uh, right to to get involved and, and do this. Um, so so there's that piece. I think there, there's definitely room. Whatever whatever your your idea, whatever your concept. Um, you can you can find a body of listeners who will who will value that, um, and and that's a good thing about podcasting is it's it opens up the door I think for narrow casting as opposed to broadcasting. You know, we think about broadcasting, we're trying to hit as many people as possible with a you know certain uh, a, a 
kind of content. Narrow casting, on the other hand, is is a, is very niche focused. It's very specific. Um, it's uh, you know the modern scholar podcast. That's uh, a very unique and, and very specific audience, but um, it's worldwide. That's the thing mm-hmm. about podcasting. It's free. It's worldwide. So even though it might be a niche audience, when you think about a global audience, that's a lot of people. Um, and so that's that's a lot of people that you can reach with your content, with your ideas, with uh, guests, if you plan to interview guests um, and, and share that conversation, share that content with with a wide number of people. Mm-hmm. So I say go for it. I think in terms of advice, practical advice um, is uh, keep in mind that this does take a fair amount of time. Um, so, so kind of keep that in the back of your head. Um, but then uh, in terms of an order to things, I would, I would nail down the concept first, um, because that ultimately is going to inform everything else that you do in terms of the marketing, in terms of the, the, um, social media and the branding and all of that. Um, so nail down the concept, uh, make, make sure that it's something that you're comfortable with, that you like, that, uh, um, you think has an audience and that you're willing to, to work with. Um, and then one, but once that's done, then it becomes a matter of just you know, working out the logistics and, and kind of the infrastructure, find your, uh, your platform, your distributor, um, your, you know, get a, get, get some artwork, uh, get a, get a logo, um, and, uh, kind of take care of those, uh, infrastructure items. And then, then just start recording. Um, that's, that's one of the, those things that, uh, you know, the, we've all heard that just do it, you know, the, the phrase that, that there's, there's no point in waiting. I think that that definitely applies to podcasting. Once, once you get some of those ideas down and, and kind of know what you're, what you're going to do, then, um, then go for it, um, and, right. uh, and see what happens. I like that kind of encouragement. So, so Phil, I know you are starting in this new position as executive director of the Lee Atalamba Regional Library System, right? And yep. so what, what's, what's in the future for you? Are you going to, do you see opportunities to continue your, your re- uh, research on the Air Force or on the security service, your, your, the future of the podcast? What do you see yourself doing in addition to managing the pretty sprawling library system that you're going to be in charge of. <laughs> no, absolutely. I think it's, it's, you know, I've always been uh, one of those uh, people that, that likes a, a good bit of variety. I think that's, that's ultimately what led me uh, to librarianship as a profession, as opposed to kind of taking the traditional academic track with, with history. Um, and uh, so, I, I, you know, as we all know, in libraries, every day is different. Um, there is an incredible amount of variety. There's a lot of things that that happen and and that need to be done. And so, I, I really value that. I really appreciate that. And I think that libraries are a really dynamic environment where a lot of good things happen. Um, so that's exciting. I'm, I'm I'm excited for this for this new role and, and getting involved with that. But also, yes, plan to continue with the research. Plan to continue with the podcast um, because I really think that this this does bring value. I think, you know, if uh, many of your listeners will probably be familiar with uh, uh, Mike Rowe. He's a, he's a figure that, that needs very little introduction at this point. We know him from Dirty Jobs and a variety of other things. And uh, he has a podcast. Uh, it's called uh, The Way I Heard It. And he has a you know variety of different guests, variety of different uh, topics. But the bottom line for me is that he has initiated a very meaningful conversation about the dignity of work, about uh, whether or not we as a country need to reevaluate what the prevailing definition of a good job might be. And I think we need to have that same conversation in academia. Um, whether I'm the guy to do it or not, I think we need to kind of bring that to academia, bring that to the humanities and say, okay, we know the way things are currently. We know the state of the job market. We know um, the way our programs are, are, are structured, the way that the content is, is developed and delivered, and what we are preparing our students for. Are we doing a good enough job? Are there other things that we need to be preparing our students to be doing? And and 
really for me, I think it comes down to the quote unquote skills of history. What are those things that uh, really modern scholars need to know in order to be effective and, and, and successful in the, in the modern job market, in the modern landscape? but that might be missing from some of our programs. And so some of those things that just immediately come to mind are, you know, grant writing, web design, public speaking, social media, all of these things that we uh, at this point realize are very important uh, to our professional lives as scholars, but may be missing uh, from traditional academic programs. And so if, if I can be a part of kind of highlighting those things and, and having those conversations and bringing those things to light, uh, then I'm, I'm all for it. Well, Philip Shackelford, we think uh, we're, we're at a better piece. We're very happy that you were able to join us today to talk about your work and to be part of this conversation and uh, congratulate you on the work that you've done so far and look forward to seeing what you do next. But for today, uh, thanks for being with us today, Phil. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs. Send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please take a moment to subscribe to A Better Piece on your podcatcher of choice, because after listening to a conversation like this, why would you not want to subscribe to A Better Piece? And after having subscribed to A Better Piece, please rate and review this podcast, because that's how more people can find out about us. That's how we can continue to grow the community for conversations like this one. And even though this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming you to the next one. And so from the war room until next time, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.